God is always playing the long game. He's always doing a deep work, and he is not interested in straight lines or easy fixes. He is after the root. He's building a foundation, and he's telling a story that will reverberate to the furthest reaches of creation. So you have to prepare yourself for some ups and downs. There will be twists, turns, disappointments, and delays. That is the pattern of all true redemptive stories. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. God is playing a long game. He's doing a deep work and he is telling a story that will reverberate to the furthest reaches of creation. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 5. This chapter begins the narrative of Moses and Aaron's prophetic mission to Pharaoh. We pick up the story at verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, it's worth noting here that this is the first use in the Bible of the standard prophetic formula, Thus saith the Lord. Moses, of course, is the archetypal Old Testament prophet, and the job of an Old Testament prophet was to speak the word of the Lord. The prophets had authority not in and of themselves. Their authority was, to use a New Testament term, that of an apostle or ambassador. That was the original meaning of the word apostle before it became attached in a formal sense with the disciples of Jesus. It meant simply sent with authority. An apostle was an emissary, and his authority was that of the one who sent him. And so it is here. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh as apostles, as it were, as emissaries empowered to speak on behalf of Yahweh. But Pharaoh is not impressed, as we see clearly in verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice? And let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Remember that whenever you see in your Bible the word Lord spelled capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, you are seeing a representative of the name Yahweh, which most English translations won't translate for fear of offending Jewish sensibilities. Uh, Jewish people generally do not pronounce the divine name, which many Christian scholars believe actually is an unhelpful tradition that we ought not to follow. And so some English translations are starting to use again the divine name, but the ESV and most others do not. So just remember that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is Yahweh. And that is particularly important for us to recall in this story. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh as authorized emissaries of Yahweh, whom Pharaoh deems a lesser divinity to himself. And therein lies the central conflict that will shape this narrative from chapter 5 all the way through to chapter 15. This is a conflict between Yahweh and Pharaoh. Nahum Sarna comments here saying, 
The pharaoh was the incarnation of a god in Egyptian doctrine. This divine status meant that his power was unlimited, that his will was incontestable law, and that his utterances possessed divine force. He regards himself as Yahweh's superior. Closed quote. Understanding that is critical to our understanding of the story. God is engineering a contest here between himself and Pharaoh. The entire Exodus is being designed to humiliate Pharaoh and to show the world that he's merely a man and that he too is subject to the only God who exists, the God introducing himself here as Yahweh. Now, just note from an application perspective that conversion, therefore, is always a movement from the worship of lesser things to the worship of greater things, or from the worship of false things to the worship of true things. See, everyone is worshiping something, and this story is telling us that God will often undermine and expose our idols, the things we worship that we ought not to worship, as part of his program for the capture and conversion of our souls. That can be a very traumatic experience as indeed it was for the people of Israel. Just put that thought in your back pocket for now. We re-enter our story at verse 3. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Again, as has already been stated, the request to go on a religious pilgrimage into the desert was typical of Eastern conversational etiquette. Requests were generally modest initially, and then if they met with favor, would be expanded to match the true intentions that the petitioner had in mind. So here, had Pharaoh said, oh yes, by all means, that sounds marvelous. Moses' next words would have been some version of, May it please the king, let us go and study the ways of the Lord and do all that he commands us to do. At which point the Pharaoh would have approved or not approved the next stage of the growing series of requests. But we never get to that point because Pharaoh is entirely disinterested in giving the Hebrews any additional freedoms. And thus he sends them out of his presence and back to work. Verse 5. And Pharaoh said, Behold... The people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. So here we see that the new Pharaoh has essentially the same fearful attitude toward the Hebrews as his predecessor. He sees them as immigrants and invaders, and he is worried that they will grow and become strong and potentially take over the land. R. Allen Cole says usefully here, many modern immigration restrictions stem from this fear. Christians should carefully ponder their attitudes to such laws on the basis of Scripture, noting how readily fear leads to hatred and cruelty, as here. That is well and helpfully said. Hey, Pastor Paul, let me jump in here because that is just a huge topic, obviously. Let me repeat what you just said there, citing Alan Cole. You said, quote, Many modern immigration restrictions stem from this fear. Christians should carefully ponder their attitudes to such laws on the basis of Scripture, noting how readily fear leads to hatred and cruelty as here, end quote. 
So we know immigration is a pretty hot topic right now because of the situation in Afghanistan, just like it was a couple of years ago because of the situation in Syria. So what should our attitude be as Christians when it comes to the matter of immigration? Well, the main thing in that citation from Cole is to make sure that our attitudes are biblical. Because for a lot of us, our attitudes are shaped mostly by political or economic concerns. I hear people say, I'm worried that they're going to take our jobs, or I'm, I'm worried about potential terrorism. Okay, that's fine. But those are not biblical concerns per se. A biblically informed person is going to say, my main concern is making disciples. It's hard for me to make disciples in Afghanistan because Afghanistan is far away and I don't speak the language. And it's hard for us to get missionaries into Afghanistan because of the antagonism of the government. But now, all of a sudden, there are a bunch of people from Afghanistan who want to come here and learn our language and live in our communities. So actually, doesn't that make my job a lot easier? I, I mean... If we really believe that we're going to heaven when we die and that our main job on planet Earth is to make disciples of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth, then isn't immigration the greatest thing in the history of the universe? Well, yeah. I mean, when you put it that way, it kind of sounds like it is. But just to be clear here, you aren't saying that there shouldn't be any kind of process or some kind of screening mechanism to weed out, say, potential terrorists, are you? No, of course not. Listen, that's why we have a government. Their job is to protect us. The king does not bear the sword in vain, the Bible says. So the government can be suspicious so that you and I can be welcoming. The government can have a process so that you and I can build relationships. So yes, let the government do its thing. Insist that the government do its thing. But then let's you and I do our thing. And our thing is to reach out to the stranger and to the alien. Our thing is is to make disciples of all nations in Jesus' name. All right, that makes a ton of sense. Thanks for that. Let's return now to the story at verse 6. Verse 6. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it. Pay no regard to lying words. It will be helpful for us to remember here that the taskmasters are Egyptian overseers, while the foremen are the Hebrew overseers, the Egyptian overseers would have received their instructions from Pharaoh's underlings, and they would then execute those instructions through the Hebrew foreman, who no doubt had some facility in the Egyptian language. It is unlikely that all the Hebrews could speak Egyptian, but it is certain and obvious from the story that some did speak it very well. And likewise, we assume that these Egyptian taskmasters would likely have had some basic facility in Hebrew. The main thing to observe in this section of the story is Pharaoh's response to the initial request of Moses and Aaron. You want more freedoms, he says? I'll give you less. He responds, of course, as all petty tyrants do. In fact, his response reminds us of the response of young Rehoboam, the son of Solomon in 1 Kings 12. When the people asked for leniency, he responded by increasing their burdens. He said, you didn't like my father's whip? I will scourge you with scorpions. Here we are beginning to see the process by which Pharaoh is being revealed as a mere mortal. He is no god. 
He is not even a very wise or insightful king. He's a fool who thinks that he can solve every problem and answer every question with a fist. Pharaoh's out of his league here, and this situation is about to spiral completely out of control. Verse 10, so the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Now, notice again the conflict at the center of this drama. It's a conflict of authority. The taskmaster says, thus says Pharaoh, which is, of course, presented as a contrast with the prophetic, thus says Yahweh. The question, then, is whose word will rule the world? The word of man or the word of God? That's the root question behind every redemption story. The word of man is always, ultimately, tyrannical in the end. The word of God, on the other hand, leads to life, freedom, and human flourishing. So here we see Pharaoh trying to enforce his word upon the people of Israel, and that leads predictably to terrible hardship and injustice. Verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So the foremen, who are Israelites, cry out to Pharaoh. The Hebrew here is the same as was used in 2.23. There they cried out to God, and he had pity on them and began to move and act for their redemption. Here, they cry out to Pharaoh, and he has no mercy, no compassion, and no interest whatsoever in relieving their burden. In fact, he increases their burden. They now have to gather their own straw and still meet the daily quota for bricks. And all of this, of course, is designed simply to crush their spirits. The foremen say, in essence, we are being treated unfairly. But of course, Pharaoh intended for them to be treated unfairly. That was the whole point. He wants to break them and dehumanize them because he is afraid of them. But the foremen are not yet capable of seeing the big picture. They just know that their life just got a lot more complicated and they're not happy. They go to Moses and Aaron and complain, you were supposed to be our deliverers, our rescuers. Well, this rescue stinks. 
All you have done is put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses and Aaron are, of course, quite dismayed by this turn of events. They no doubt thought that things would work out much more directly than they eventually did. Such is the experience of all people in ministry. God is always playing the long game. He's always doing a deep work, and he is not interested in straight lines or easy fixes. He is after the root. He's building a foundation, and he's telling a story that will reverberate to the furthest reaches of creation. So you have to prepare yourself for some ups and downs. There will be twists, turns, disappointments, and delays. That is the pattern of all true redemptive stories. Matthew 4.16 says, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. That is the shape of the gospel, my friends. Old Testament and New. Thanks be to God. Hey, Pastor Paul, you mentioned at the end of the program audio that God is always playing the long game. I think in one of the previous episodes, you said that God is more crockpot than microwave. I love that. I can see that in these Bible stories, but how does that work out in real life? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and I think the answer comes out of these biblical stories. In all the biblical stories, God is moving slow. He's, he's going deep. We talked a few weeks ago about how God sent Moses into Midian for a 40-year training course on pastoral ministry. All right, that's long, slow, and deep. Most of us just have no category for that. When we're in school, we're asking, what is the shortest program I can enroll in to get me from here to there? But God seems to be asking, what is the longest, deepest, and hardest program I can enroll you in that will do the most work and make you the best version of you in terms of the ministry I have in store for you? So, Reading these stories will help us understand why God keeps sending us down these long and winding roads. Because he's God. That's who he is. He is eternal. So there is no human analogy for the divine sense of time. And thus, being a person of faith is about adjusting internally to God's sense of timing and process. And you find this sort of counsel all over the Bible. In the Old Testament, you get it in the stories, like the one we're talking about right now. You also get it in the wisdom literature. So we think, for example, of Psalm 90, which, interestingly enough, was written by none other than Moses himself. It is the oldest psalm in the Bible, and it is all about how God is everlasting and slow, whereas our lives are brief and pass away like a vapor. So Psalm 90, verses 2 to 4 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust, and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Close quote. Now, you could only write that after spending 40 years in God's school of ministry. Moses is figuring out that God moves slow and does deep and permanent work. And then, of course, Jesus talked about this all the time as well. Think about how many of Jesus' parables are about patience and perseverance during the long delay between his departure and ultimate return. 
There's the parable of the wicked servant. There's the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents. Even the parable of the wheat and the weeds is about the importance of waiting. Waiting and being patient is a major theme in the Bible because God is God. He does things right the first time. He does a deep work and he does a wide work. And the wide work part is actually the reason sometimes for the long delay, isn't it? I mean, isn't that basically what Peter said in 2 Peter 3? Yes, exactly. And and Peter quotes from Psalm 90 in that passage. He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So Peter says, there's there's no understanding God's sense of time. A thousand years to him is like a day. Peter stole that line from Moses in Psalm 90. So you won't be able to anticipate God's timeline or pace. So don't even bother. Just understand that the delay is not because he doesn't care. It isn't because he forgot. It's because he's doing a wide work. He wants this gospel of the kingdom to be proclaimed to people in every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. So he's being patient. But rest assured, the end he promised will come in the way he promised. The day of the Lord will come swiftly, not soon perhaps, but swiftly. There'll be lots of waiting and watching and wondering. And then all of a sudden, swoosh, the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies, the stars themselves will be burnt up and dissolved. And everything done on this earth will be exposed. We will have a final judgment and we will have an eternal kingdom. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, I am looking forward to that, however long it may be in coming. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.